Good afternoon, everyone. In a previous sermon, we discussed the fact that, that in the New Testament are some very strong claims concerning Jesus Christ, that he was born of a virgin, that he worked many miracles, that he died by crucifixion and was resurrected three days later, that he has the authority to forgive sins and thus remove their penalty, that he was God in the flesh. Those are some of the claims made in the New Testament concerning Jesus Christ. And it was pointed out that God does not want us to believe in him simply by blind faith, that is, faith with no supporting evidence. We see that Jesus offered many signs, many proofs to his disciples concerning the claims that he made about himself and who he was. And he did not ask them to have blind faith or faith without evidence. Luke wrote in the book of Acts, Acts 1, beginning with verse 1, he said, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he did not expect the apostles to believe without evidence, and he does not expect us to believe without evidence. John wrote in John 20, beginning with verse 30, John 20 and verse 30, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book that is in his gospel account, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you may have life in his name. So he wrote about many of the signs, or at least some of the signs that Jesus gave of proof that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Not everything was written there, but the things that are there are written so that we may have eyewitness testimony and believe what is said about him. In the previous sermon, I emphasized that the New Testament accounts concerning Jesus, who he was, the things he did, the message he preached, were either firsthand eyewitness accounts or accounts written by those who had written down the testimony of eyewitnesses and passed them on to us. I briefly alluded to the fact that there are many prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other person is a credible candidate for having fulfilled those prophecies. We read of Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 26. It says, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet, then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? 
And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him, beginning at this scripture, a scripture in the book of Isaiah. The word preached in Acts 8, verse 35 in this context is translated from the Greek word euangelizo, which means to announce good news or preach the gospel. And notice again that Philip preached the gospel to the eunuch from the scriptures from the scriptures, beginning with Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, where those statements are found that we just read. And yes, the Old Testament scriptures are part of the gospel. The translation in Acts of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, the one we just read in Acts chapter 8, reads slightly different from other English translations of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. For example, if you read that same scripture in the King James and New King James Version, it would read slightly differently because it is a translation from Hebrew to Greek and then again into English, whereas the translation in your Old Testament is from directly from Hebrew to English. But the meaning, even though the words may be slightly different, is essentially the same. When the apostles and other ministers in the New Testament era proclaimed the gospel to their audiences, what did they teach from? They taught from the scriptures of the Old Testament, which in the early years of the church were the only scriptures in existence. Most of the books of the New Testament, virtually all of them, were not written until at least a couple of decades or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the apostles and others who were doing the teaching, ministers in the church were teaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And how did they do that? They showed how certain prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus Christ or were being fulfilled in the church. And they pointed to other prophecies which would be fulfilled in the future, and they taught other doctrines from the Old Testament. That's where they got their, their doctrine, as well as from the statements made by Jesus Christ that they also quoted. And so that was the source of their teaching. It was based on the scriptures, scriptures of the Old Testament, as well as Jesus Christ's teaching, supplementing, and explaining more about what the Old Testament is all about. In this sermon, I want to examine with you some prophecies from the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these prophecies give powerful testimony to the truth of Scripture 
and the identity of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was some of these scriptures that Philip used to explain more about Jesus Christ to the eunuch from Ethiopia. First, let's begin with the name of Jesus Christ. In Luke 1 and verse 26, Luke 1 and verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered her and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. He was to be called the Son of God because he was conceived supernaturally in the womb of Mary directly by God through the Holy Spirit. The Messiah was to be born of a virgin, to be born of a virgin. We read in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Isaiah 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God is with us. So a virgin was to conceive and bear a son. And this is a prophecy of the Messiah. The name Mary was told by the angel to give her son was Jesus. Jesus is the anglicized form of the Greek word Jesus, which is itself a transliteration from the Hebrew word Yehoshua, which means saved of Yahweh. Or as applied to Jesus Christ, it means Yahweh Savior. Yahweh is the name of the God of Israel, and it means the eternal the self-existing God who created all things. So the name Jesus means Yahweh Savior or the eternal Savior. In speaking of Jesus Christ, John wrote in John 1, beginning with verse 2, John 1 and verse 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. What this implies is that everything that is created 
That is the entire created universe and everything in it was created by and through Jesus Christ, which is also stated directly in other scriptures. It also means that Jesus Christ himself is not a created being, that he is the eternal, that he has always existed, just as the Father has existed. And continuing with verse 14 of John 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word then is Jesus Christ. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The only one who has been or ever will be begotten of directly of God in the way that Jesus was is Jesus. Now, others can be begotten in a different sense, but the only one begotten as Jesus was in the womb of a woman supernaturally was Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, shepherds were in the field nearby and an angel appeared to them and said, as we read in Luke 2 and verse 11, Luke 2 and verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we already read that the name Jesus means the eternal Savior or Yahweh Savior. And the angel told these shepherds that there was born that day, the day of Jesus' birth, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angels told the shepherds that they would find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes in Bethlehem lying in a manger. And so we read, Going on in Luke chapter 2, verse 16, Luke 2 and verse 16, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child, this child who was Christ the Lord. The word Christ is an anglicized form of the Greek word Christos, which is equivalent in meaning to the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah, as transliterated into English. The word Messiah, or Christ, which are equivalent words in two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, they both mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. They mean one who is anointed. And what this means in the context of Jesus Christ is it points to offices to which Jesus Christ is anointed. Now, in Israel, when a king assumed office, he was anointed with oil. When a high priest assumed office, he was anointed with oil. Now, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And these offices to which Jesus has been anointed include king. He's been anointed to be a king. He's been anointed to the office of a high priest and an apostle. When a minister was chosen in the New Testament church, they were prayed over and had hands laid on them, and that was a form of being anointed. 
at the time appointed in the prophecy of Daniel 9 and verse 25, the 70 weeks prophecy, at the time appointed in that prophecy, the Messiah appeared and began his public ministry. He had to appear at a particular time in history, which is specified in the 70 weeks prophecy. He had to appear when certain conditions were present. For one thing, he had to appear before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple occurred. We read in Daniel 9, verse 26, Daniel 9, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. This would be in the 70th week, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So notice that he would be cut off and the people of the prince who is to come, and this is speaking of not the Messiah, but another prince, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, the city and the temple, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by a prince, a Roman prince acting under the, the authority of the Roman emperor and the one who was involved in that uh, siege of Jerusalem, soon became the emperor himself. But the city and the temple were destroyed in a siege that began 40 years after Jesus was crucified. And then for a number of years, the city lay in ruins and the temple it was completely destroyed and is destroyed to this day. But he had to be born before those events occurred because things that were to happen in, in his life that were prophesied were to occur in the environs of Jerusalem and in the temple. Jesus went to John the Baptist who was preaching and baptizing in the vicinity of the Jordan River when he was about 30 years old, near the time that he turned 30, either before or after, right around that time. And he asked John to baptize him when John baptized Jesus, somehow he discerned the Holy Spirit descending and remaining on Jesus. And he recognized Jesus because of this as the Son of God. We read in John 1, beginning in verse 32, John 1 and verse 32, John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, probably when John said, I did not know him, it doesn't mean that he did not know who Jesus was or did not know Jesus because he was a cousin of Jesus, but it means that he did not necessarily perceive before that time that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. Now how exactly what form the Spirit took when it descended to be visible to John, we don't know, it says like a dove, it doesn't mean it looked 
necessarily like a dove, but it descended like a dove. And uh, we see in, in Acts, in the book of Acts, how the Holy Spirit was manifested as flaming fire and also was manifested in speaking in, or at least hearing in various languages. But somehow John perceived that the Holy Spirit had descended upon Jesus at the time of his baptism. And to him that was the sign that this was indeed the Son of God. Now the next day after that, two of John the Baptist's disciples followed Jesus after they heard John speak of him as, quote, the Lamb of God. We read in John 1 and verse, beginning with verse 40, John 1 and verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, Simon Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. So John the Baptist recognized Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Messiah, the one prophesied to come from God in heaven because they knew the scriptures and they believed Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. So Jesus Christ is identified by his name and the testimony given as the eternal God, Savior, King, high priest and apostle. And again, Messiah means anointed and he is anointed to those offices. We've seen in the scriptures already quoted Jesus being identified as the eternal God, Savior and King. In the book of Hebrews, he's also identified as a high priest or the high priest and apostle. We read in Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. Jesus Christ is the chief apostle of the church and he is the high priest. He is the savior of the body and he is the king, the Lord, the master, the ruler. David was the son of Jesse who is identified as being of Bethlehem and thus Bethlehem is called the city of David in several scriptures including Luke 2 and verse 4. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. We read in Micah 2, 5 and verse 2, Micah 5 and verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, which according to sources I've read is simply a, another name for Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, and Bethlehem was a relatively small town, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. This is Micah 5, verse 2. 
a prophecy that the Messiah, the one to be ruler in Israel, the one who was from everlasting, in other words, the eternal God, and yet to be the ruler in Israel, in other words, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. In Isaiah 9 is a prophecy of the Messiah showing that he would be a descendant of David. In Isaiah 9, beginning with verse 6, Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So a child was to be born who would be called, among other things, mighty God, and he would sit on the throne of David forever. Another prophecy of the Messiah in Jeremiah likewise shows that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. We read in Jeremiah 23, beginning with verse 5, Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper. The, the idea of a branch means a descendant of David. And he would be a king who would reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now this is a prophecy of the Messiah, but some of these things that are stated here are yet to be fulfilled. But Jesus was born and he was a descendant of David. There are several other prophecies that also reveal that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. A crowd, we're told in John 7, heard Jesus speak at the Feast of Tabernacles, or actually on the last great day, as well as probably during the feast earlier. But in verse 40 of John 7, it says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. And they were speaking of the prophet who was prophesied to be like Moses in certain respects, which is another prophecy of, of the Messiah. Jesus was also a prophet. I guess we should have thrown that title in too because prophets were anointed as well. But others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not scripture said that the Christ comes from, from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. So what we see from this account is that the Jews expected the Messiah to be from Bethlehem and they expected the Messiah to be a descendant of David. And Jesus fulfilled both of those expectations though many at the time did not realize it because although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Galilee. Before Jesus was born, an angel had appeared to Joseph, Mary's husband, as related in Matthew chapter 
1, beginning at verse 18. And we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now I might interject here that by Jewish custom, before a couple celebrated their wedding and their marriage was consummated, they became betrothed. And a betrothal was, in effect, a marriage. And there was a period of time between the betrothal, usually, and the time that, that the marriage was consummated. And so this is what it's talking about. They were married, in fact, according to custom, but he had not had intimate relations with her. So he was her husband. As it says, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now remember the name Jesus means eternal Savior, or Yahweh Savior, or saved of Yahweh. So all this was done, Matthew goes on in verse 22, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now we've already read that Joseph, Mary's husband, was of the house of David, but Mary herself was also a descendant of David. Her line of descent is traced in Luke chapter 3. She was a descendant of Nathan, a son of David the king. When John the Baptist was born, his father Zacharias, who was a priest, prophesied, saying, as we read in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 68, John the Baptist's father prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. A horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Paul the apostle proclaimed in a sermon given in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13, Acts 13, beginning verse 22, Paul said in this sermon that God raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. And Paul also wrote in Romans 1 and verse 3, of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So Mary and Joseph, both, both his 
legal father from the standpoint of how it was viewed by law among the Jews. He was legally the son of Joseph, but he was the child of Mary through being born of her, and he was of the seed of David according to the flesh, as well as the legal heir of David through the one who was his human father in a legal sense. Scripture tells us that Jesus worked many miracles as a sign of being the Messiah. And in Matthew 11, beginning verse 2, Matthew 11, verse 2, it says, When John, this is John the Baptist, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, John was in prison at this time, he heard in prison about the works of Christ. He sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? The coming one was a common term for the Messiah. And so he was asking, he, he sent the disciples to ask Jesus directly if he was, in fact, the Messiah. He said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And John probably believed that Jesus was the Messiah based on other things that we read, but he just wanted to make doubly sure about this. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Notice what he pointed to as evidence for John that he was the Messiah. People were being healed of all kinds of afflictions. Even blind people were seeing, deaf people were hearing, lame people were able to get up and walk, lepers were healed, even the dead were raised up, and the gospel was being preached. In other words, there were lots of miracles, miraculous healings, and other miracles occurring in connection with Jesus' ministry and his activities. Interestingly, the Jews who opposed Christ, and that was most of the leaders as well as others, but those Jews who opposed Christ did not deny that Jesus worked miracles. They couldn't deny it because it was too obvious. What they did do is they attributed those miracles to Satan. On one occasion, and this was one of several, when Jesus had performed healings and cast out a demon, as we read in Matthew 12, verse 24, Matthew 12, verse 24, it says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub is a title of Satan, the devil, the ruler of the demons, the chief demon. So that's what they said. They didn't deny that he was working miracles. They said this was through the power of Satan that he was doing this. It was prophesied in Isaiah 42 and verse 7 that Jesus would open the eyes of the blind. It was prophesied that he would heal those who needed healing and free those imprisoned, which could include those bound by disease and infirmity. As we read in Isaiah chapter 61, beginning verse 1, Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. And that's what he did during his ministry. He healed people. He liberated them from being bound by infirmity and sickness, diseases. He freed people from being bound and dominated by demons, and he proclaimed the gospel. Many miraculous healings are attributed to Jesus in the New Testament, many miraculous healings. Not only did Jesus heal many of his own nation who were sick or suffered from various infirmities, such as blindness, deafness, lameness, and so forth, but he healed some others, including some of Rome, Samaria, Tyre, and Sidon. However, it was primarily Jewish or Israelite people that he healed because as he testified, his witness during his earthly sojourn was primarily to the people of Israel. So Jesus' miracles, because so many people were healed and the news spread all over, especially in the area where the Jews lived, Judea and Galilee, Jesus' miracles were well-known among the Jewish population. They were so well-known that in preaching to a crowd at the temple after Jesus' death and resurrection and after he had departed to be with the Father, Peter was preaching in the temple and he said to the people there who had, of course, been mostly Jews, in Acts 2 and verse 22, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Notice how Peter approached testifying that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Among the proofs were the wonders, the miracles that he did among them, and he said, you know this because you are witnesses. You've seen these things, seen the people being healed, and so forth. In the book of Hebrews, the Jewish audience, the book of Hebrews was primarily written originally for a Jewish audience, although, of course, it applies to everybody in principle, but it was written primarily for the Jews when it was first circulated. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. In that book, the audience was also reminded of the testimony borne by Jesus' miracles, where we read in Hebrews 2 and verse 4, that God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God testified concerning the offices of Jesus, among other things, through the miracles that he did, which were prophesied to happen. Now the Jewish leaders, most of them, rejected Jesus, and they sought to have him killed. But later Jewish literature, such as the Mishnah, does not deny miracles occurred. They don't say Jesus didn't work any miracles. They actually don't refer to Jesus by name, but by euphemism, which is not complimentary, but uh, they don't deny that miracles occurred. Rather, the literature describes Jesus as a sorcerer, 
implicitly acknowledging that he performed miracles. In other words, he did strange things, but it was through sorcery, through the power of Satan, as we read earlier. There are other Jewish sources as well besides the Mishnah that imply that same thing. Now, Jesus healed many people, as we read, including children, very young children, as well as adults. And we find an excerpt of a letter of a man named Quadratus, Quadratus, probably would be a better pronunciation, Quadratus or Quadratus, however they pronounce it. But he was a leader of the church in Athens very early in the second century. And he is quoted by Eusebius. This is where this statement is preserved by Eusebius, a church historian who lived in the fourth century. Quoting from Quadratus is this statement. Our Savior's works, moreover, were always present, for they were real consisting of those who had been healed of their diseases, those who had been raised from the dead, who were not only seen while they were being healed and raised up, but were afterwards constantly present. Nor did they remain only during the sojourn of the Savior on earth, but also a considerable time after his departure. And indeed, some of them have survived even down to our own times. Now, this was written early in the second century, so this would have been decades after the death of Jesus and his resurrection. But there were still living people at that time who had been healed by Jesus or even raised from the dead by Jesus, according to this testimony. For most of the first century and into the second century, there were people alive who could testify that they personally had been healed miraculously by Jesus. So it's no wonder that people weren't going around denying that these miracles did not occur. There were too many witnesses to the fact that they did occur. There weren't just a few who were healed. There were multitudes, according to Scripture. Josephus, who was a Pharisee and a Jewish historian, wrote of Jesus that he was, quote, a doer of startling deeds. A doer of startling deeds, implying miracles. And most scholars who've studied the reference in Josephus' antiquities believe that it is genuine, even though some of the things found in the context are believed to be interpolations by another hand, but that particular statement by most scholars who've studied it is believed to be genuine, that he was a doer of startling deeds. In the Old Testament, we find that God worked miracles through some of the prophets, but there are no claims of miracles wrought by many other prophets or prominent men and women of the Old Testament. For example, I don't recall reading about Abraham working miracles. Now, Abraham is called the father of the faithful. He's a very important personage in the Old Testament. There are few, if any, more prominent than Abraham, and yet he did not work miracles as far as we know. Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew 11 and verse 11, 
Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one who had been prophesied, and he came preparing the way for the Messiah through his ministry. And Jesus said, there's no one greater among men than he. John was thought to be a prophet by many Jews, but he performed no miracles. As we read in John 10 and verse 41, John 10 and verse 41, many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man, meaning Jesus, were true. John performed no miracles, no miraculous signs, but Jesus, we're told, performed countless miracles. As I mentioned, some of the prophets also performed similar miracles, men like Elijah and Elisha, who healed some people and even raised the dead on occasion. But their miracles were uh, extremely limited in number compared to Jesus' miracles. There are far more miracles attributed to Jesus far more miracles attributed to Jesus than anyone in Scripture, than anyone in history as far as I know. And these miracles were done as a testimony to his identity as the Messiah. Jesus was condemned by the Jewish council on a charge of blasphemy. Matthew 26, verse 63. Matthew 26 and verse 63. The high priest answered and said to him, to Jesus when he was examining him after he'd been arrested. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, the Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of Man are all titles ascribed to the Messiah in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And the Messiah was believed to be a divine being who would come from heaven. So when Jesus said that, it says, Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death because they assumed that because Jesus said, in effect, that he is the Messiah, that he was speaking blasphemy. Now, had he not been the Messiah, he would have been speaking blasphemy, but he was the Messiah. And they said that he deserves death because the penalty for blasphemy under the law was death by stoning. As we read in Leviticus 24, verse 16, Leviticus 24, verse 16, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. But that's not how Jesus died. A prophecy in the Psalms describes a different kind of death, one by crucifixion. To fulfill the prophecies of the death of the, of the Messiah, as it is described in the Old Testament, his death as a lamb led to slaughter, giving his life for the sins of mankind, he had to die a different kind of death. 
because that's not how his death is described in the prophecies. Under the Romans at the time of Jesus, a usual means of administering the death penalty was by scourging and crucifixion. Now, presumably the Jewish leaders could have stoned Jesus, even though administering the death penalty under Jewish law was extremely rare at that time. That's why they told Pilate when he was questioning them that they couldn't administer the death penalty. They Technically, they could, but they rarely did so. It was so rare that it was virtually forbidden. Not totally, but almost. And so the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They'd wanted to kill him for a long time, but they wanted the Romans to do it for them. And so the Jewish leaders who were, as you know, under Roman domination at the time, sought to have the Romans execute Jesus on a charge of sedition because he said he was a king. Since he was claiming to be the Messiah, that meant he was claiming to be a king. And that's what they told Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate couldn't really see any fault in him. He thought it was just a dispute among the Jews and they needed to settle it between themselves. And so he sought to release Jesus, as we read in John chapter 19. John 19, verse 12, and it says, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. In other words, they're saying, This man is guilty of sedition against the Roman government, the Caesar, the king, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And if you just let him go, you are betraying Caesar. That's the charge they were implying. And so Pilate, not wanting to be accused of being an enemy of Caesar, which would mean the death penalty for him, capitulated to their demands. And he had Jesus crucified. We read about a prophecy about Jesus' death, one of several in the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, verse, beginning with verse 6, a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And this relates to Jesus' death by crucifixion. And it reads, beginning with verse 6 of Psalm 22, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me crushed while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet." 
I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is not a death of stoning being described. This is a death of having been scourged and nailed to a cross. And as Jesus hung on a cross, his hands and feet pierced by nails, he endured all the things mentioned here that I just read in this prophecy and more. And he bore the sins of mankind in dying that death. As we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 12, Isaiah 53 and verse 12, he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As I pointed out in another sermon I gave recently, few if any serious scholars doubt that Jesus was crucified. And many details concerning the events that happened to him relating to his persecution, crucifixion, and death were prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before the events occurred. And in previous sermons, I've gone through some of the specific detailed prophecies concerning Jesus' crucifixion in particular. Of course, the preeminent sign that Jesus gave concerning who he was is his resurrection. We read in Matthew 12, beginning, beginning with verse 38, Matthew 12, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In a previous sermon, I discussed in some detail the evidence that Jesus was in fact resurrected after being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In summary, this evidence includes, number one, many saw Jesus after he was resurrected. There were many alive at that time who could attest to the fact that Jesus was resurrected as the apostles said. Secondly, Saul, who was a up and coming Jewish official and a zealous persecutor of Christians suddenly was converted to a zealous advocate for Christ rather than a persecutor. And he sacrificed nearly everything dear to him for a life of hardship and sacrifice after encountering Jesus in a vision. Third, before his death, Jesus' brothers did not believe him, did not believe in him. They sort of thought he was a crackpot evidently. But immediately afterward, when he had been resurrected, they did believe in him and were among his disciples. Fourth, Gary Habermas is a biblical scholar who has researched the resurrection extensively. And he wrote in an article entitled The Resurrection in the Encyclopedia of Christian Civilization. He wrote in this article, quote, a majority of scholars concede that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was found empty just a short time afterwards. Most scholars concede the fact, and remember many, many of the so-called Bible scholars are critics more than anything else and tend to disbelieve about 
anything found in Scripture, but they concede that the tomb was empty. And how is this to be explained? And there are various theories of why it was empty, but the best explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus was resurrected, as is claimed in the New Testament. And you can study that more for yourself. If you put together all the prophecies concerning the Messiah, many prophecies, dozens, perhaps even hundreds, I haven't counted them, but there are at least dozens of prophecies concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. If you put all those prophecies together concerning the Messiah, his life, his death, his resurrection, which we've just skimmed over today, they can point to only one person as having fulfilled them. As I mentioned before, there's no other credible candidate. The only one is Jesus Christ. And one could spend a lifetime studying the evidence offered in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. And we should spend a lifetime studying the evidence. But ultimately, each person must decide what he will believe and why. According to scripture, however, that is not a casual decision. It's not a decision that should be reached lightly because the difference between believing and not believing, according to the scripture, is a matter of the difference between life and death. As we read in Mark 16, verse 16, Mark 16, verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So I hope anyone listening to this will take my advice, study the evidence.